Growing up isn't always easy, but if you're lucky enough, someone, a coach, a teacher, a parent, will help you along the way. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is Dr. Arthur Langer. He's the founder of Workforce Opportunity Services, a nonprofit organization that works to develop the skills of untapped talent from underserved and veteran communities. Art knows full well the importance of a little support and encouragement from his own experiences as a kid growing up in the Bronx. Art, thanks so much for coming in to talk with me. My pleasure. So let's take this back. Where were you born? Where were you raised? About four blocks from Yankee Stadium uh, in the Bronx. Uh, you know, my dad was a teamster during the Jimmy Hoffa era, uh, what you would consider a blue-collar family. Were you the first in your family to go to college? Absolutely. The only one that ever went to college. My two sisters never went to college. Were you encouraged to pursue higher education? I was. It was suggested that that would be a good thing. Uh, I would say both my parents didn't really know much about it, but I think as many uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe uh, was certainly favorable to some extent. Didn't have any money to help us, but uh, certainly uh, wanted me to uh, go on if possible. What was the Bronx like when you were growing up? Uh, a very, it was a melting pot. You know, it was very integrated. There was a Jewish block, an Italian block, an Irish block, an Hispanic block, an African American. But I would say to you, through my first fourteen years, uh, where I grew up, was certainly not the safest neighborhood in the world. So that being said, when you were a kid, what did you want to do when you grew up? I didn't really know. Um, I, uh, you know, I certainly thought about joining the union like my dad and becoming a teamster. That was a safe uh, job. And it really wasn't until I was going to junior high school, 22 on 170th Street uh, on Morris Avenue, which yeah, you could say it was a war zone. So what happened at that school that turned well, things around Well, I was for in you? art class and, you know, again, a very rough school. Uh, my mother would give me a dime every day in case somebody needed one and a lot of times that dime was given out. Uh, but I was in art school and uh, art class and uh, the teacher came up to me and said, you know, you're pretty good and um, uh, Saks Quality Stores on Fordham Road, which was a furniture store across from the Lowy's Paradise, uh, there was uh, some guy, his name was Mr. Ness. Uh, was giving art lessons, and they were supporting that. And she asked if she put my name in, would I would I go after school? And I said, yes, sure, I'll go. Why not? You so know. what did that lead to? Well, I got on the bus, uh, you know, on 165th Street and took me up to Fordham Road, uh, I think twice a week, and started doing some poster painting and drawing. And one day, Mr. Ness uh, asked to talk to me, and he said, uh, hey, uh, Art, you're, you're, you're pretty good. Uh, have you thought about applying to the high school of music and art? And I looked at him and said, what's that? And then he said, what about the school of art and design? And I said, what's that? And then he said, do you have a portfolio? And I said, what's that? He says, come here. I'll make a deal with you. I will give you a second scholarship, and I will give you assignments if you promise me you will apply to the high school of music and art and the High School of Art and Design. And you did. And I said, okay, I'm going to go talk to my dad. And uh, we said, okay. And Mr. Ness gave me assignment after assignment after assignment. And to my father's credit, he helped me with the matting, and I put the application in. And before I went, Mr. Ness called me in. He says, sit down. He says, I know the kind of friends you have. You're going to make both schools. You're that good. And don't let anybody tell you that's not going to happen. 
I'm telling you, you're going to make both schools. And I particularly remember getting off on the CC local in those days uh, on um, St. Nichols Avenue and 135th Street. And at the time, music and art was uh, on the campus of uh, CCNY, beautiful castle, Gothic castle. Walked up the um, the mountain and uh, had a drawer and be interviewed and uh, went to art and design. But when I walked out of music and art, I knew I had made the high school music and art. Where did you go to college? Uh, well, what happened is uh, I uh, I uh, fell in love, I guess, a little early in life and was uh, uh, got married extremely young and I had to go at night. But I went to Queens College. I didn't have any money. And Queens College at that time had the finest – one of the finest art programs. I, I just didn't have any money and wherewithal to go away to school. Uh, so I went to Queens College, but I had to work during the day, and it took me nine years to get my degree. So you can see now the connections to the creation of Workforce Opportunity Services. Right? And you got a degree in what? Computer science. Not in art. Not in art. I, I thought about it, and uh, my aunt was working in a computer company, and I was working there uh, at night during high school, and I thought about whether I could make a living. So I decided to switch to computer science, a completely different field of work. And went into the sciences and, you know, took engineering, physics, and all that good stuff. Eventually, you would become a professor at Columbia University. Eventually, a bum like me becomes a professor at Columbia University and, uh, you know, worked in industry, was a software developer, worked for Coopers and Librand for 11 years and was in the partner track, ran a couple of companies uh, and was recruiting at Columbia and started teaching there. And that's how that all started and ended up getting my doctoral work done at uh, Columbia University. In all, I spent 18 years at night going to school. I have an MBA also. What inspired you to start Workforce Opportunity Services? Well, you know, one of the things that I remember is that one person made a difference. Mr. Ness did it for you. And, you know, I never said thank you to him. Really? Uh, But I didn't have to. And uh, if he isn't there, I never get out of Bronx. And who knows what would have happened at that particular time. Uh, But what happened that triggered it is here I am, a professor at the university, and one of my students, an African-American graduate of Harvard and an NYU lawyer, was taking my tech management program course and came to me and said that uh, he was uh, doing some work on 136th Street on the Drew Projects in Manhattan off of uh, Amsterdam Avenue not far from where I went to school. And uh, Housing and Urban and Development had sponsored it, and he was teaching them break-fix technology, and he said, look, Dr. Langer, none of these people are going to get a job with what I'm training them. I'd like to do a website for Columbia University. And, of course, I said, sit down, young lad. We'll both be dead of natural causes by the time I get approval from the university to do that. But I'm interested in helping. And I remembered what it had done for me. And uh, it wasn't long on a Friday night, borrowed classrooms, told everybody what I was doing. But uh, everybody's kind of looking at me like I'm a little nuts. And 50 people showed up uh, from ages 19 to 50. And we ran this for almost five years. We got people jobs. We taught them. It was no cost. They didn't get a degree. They didn't get a certificate. And uh, what was amazing to me is none of those individuals had ever been on the campus of Columbia University. And Columbia has an open campus. So uh, after the results of that, I saw some of the challenges. And I understood that, number one, that certainly, like myself, the talent was there. And I wrote, uh, uh, we created a research instrument that that measured probability for uh, assimilation into a company. And I published a paper, a refereed journal, and presented that to the Association of American Colleges and Universities in in Washington, D.C. 
and essentially summarize that uh, universities are doing a part in this, but they can't cater to these issues. And, and what are the issues? Well, uh, finding talent is not an issue, but dealing with the other issues, uh, whether it's uh, finding enough money to get on a train, dealing with family issues, the transformation aspects of, of even thinking about going into a corporation. It's another world. And uh, most of these individuals do not have two parents and have immeasurable challenges in what they're facing. Uh, on the other hand, I said that corporations, uh, these are the findings of the first uh, paper, was that uh, corporations are risk averse. Um, and uh, they really do not understand how to assimilate this talent, and they're impatient, uh, and, and that together, either one of these entities could not solve the problem, and I'll use the word in a systemic way. I mean, if you help one person, that's a good thing, two people, three people, but that's not systemic. How do you turn the tide of what happened to Art Langer for many, many, many more people. And a big piece that we later found out in the research, because there's been four papers now, uh, is self-esteem. You know, you'll meet a lot of people that say, well, I was poor and I was in this situation and I made it. And one of the things we've realized for the people that make it and don't make it, assuming they get some level of support, is believing in themselves. So let's talk more about how Workforce Opportunity Services works you know, as I would say in the Bronx, I had an attitude about it, about uh, what I saw, and, and somewhat going through it myself, I understood it. And I wanted to go back to the core issue of supply and demand, that if you're going to create a systemic solution, the demand has to be there and the supply has to be there. So my focus was the demand for the solution was people who hire people, the corporations. And how could I provide them with talented people in a cost-effective way, but most important, with lower risk than it is today. So corporations don't want to hire a whole bunch of people from a neighborhood and then let them go. And internships, in my mind, is not systemic enough on a solution. That's just doing a nice thing. But once again, nice is not systemic. So what I wanted to do was provide them with the solution that resulted from the five years of research. And the aspect of workforce opportunity services is that we design educational programs that fit the needs of those individuals in the companies, what they're looking for, certificates, because I can't get a kid uh, on some of these campuses, certainly Columbia. They're not going to get into these programs, but I can create certificate programs of attendance and things and design a program. What I say to most companies is, what do you need them to know the first day that they show up? Let's, let's negotiate that. And I design them, and we include the soft skills and all the support, and then I go to the institution and I say, here's what we're going to pay you. And you know who's going to fund this? The buyer. And the buyer is the corporation. And we get down to the level where they want women or men, uh, what local representation do they want. And the most important thing about uh, workforce opportunity services is that we're the employer. See, this is the significant piece because um, we take the risk, right? We do the background checks. We do the drug testing. And we can do things that corporations can't do at that phase. We give 100% health care coverage. You're right? paying for the health care coverage. I pay for it. All right? And we pay f for them to go to school at night like Art Langer did. And we pay for the books and, and the tuition up front because they don't have the money to do that. We help them bank open bank accounts because there's a minimum deposit in a bank account. So they work for us. 
and we send a client service manager or a project manager to accompany them. We don't drive up the bus and say, here's your 20 people, good luck. Right? Because everybody's lean and mean. So we work with them intensely, and after a certain period of time, we complete the transformation, and when they are ready, they can hire them away for free. In the meantime, we sort of bill them as service revenues from a nonprofit point of view on a billing ratio, but 94.6% goes back to the person in tuition, uh, health care benefits, all right, and of course, payroll. And then the other things clothing, uh, working with the families. I can give you a few stories. Uh, I had a young man who was, was working out of the Bronx, right here in the Bronx, was going to Avon, uh, you know, up in Rye. And he had, he had four kids, young man, right? Calls us one day and says, I'm getting evicted. I need $3,000 today or I'm out of my house with my family. So we called the landlord and said, okay, we'll send a check for $3,000. And the landlord, of course, as you would imagine, says, uh-uh, I need cash. Hmm. So now I got to go take $3,000 out of the bank, send somebody up in a car to the Bronx, and deliver $3,000. That young man got hired by Avon, and I think his starting salary was $65,000. It doesn't get much more hands-on than that. Uh, All right. Now, it's in the trenches. That's how you solve these problems. And for every 20 people, we have a client service manager. You know, our first client was Prudential, um, and today uh, they've hired away about 200 people from us. And we are in, have been in six locations around the country with them. How many corporate partners do you have? About 65, 70 uh, in 43 locations around the country. And how wide-ranging are they in terms of the oh, opportunities goes, uh, that they so have So we do a hun- almost 100 mechanics, veteran mechanics a year for United Rentals, all the way to uh, Java developers for General Electric in Detroit and New Orleans. How do you go about recruiting people to take part in this program? You know, the old-fashioned way, like E.F. Hutton used to say, we earn it. So uh, when it comes to high school and above, um, we're, we go to the, the principals of schools. We work with superintendents. We meet with their families. Uh, we're in the trenches that way and have a lot of people, and we um, partner with universities all over the country, mostly the flagship uh, publics like um, University of Michigan, Rutgers, um, you know, Penn State, Georgia Tech. And we have various different programs today. Some are on demand for people with a little bit more experience. Maybe they, they've come out of an associate's degree, but they don't know how to find a job. They're hidden, as I would, uh, you know, actually call it. But we have pre-certs where people come in and they, uh, we test their cognitive skills, not necessarily looking at their SAT scores. And we see if they're hanging on boyfriends or girlfriends or the mother is shoving them in the room and they really don't want to be there. Do they do, the, do their homework assignments? Do they show up to all of them? And then we make selections based on um, those characteristics. And our partner corporations can participate in this. Who is your target audience? Underserved local communities. So, for example, if we're in Newark, we're going to get a lot of Portuguese kids, right? We're going to get a lot of Hispanic and African-American. If we're in Lehigh Valley, we're going to get mostly Hispanic. If we're in Detroit, we're going to get African-American. And it can go down to the level of whether they want men or women um, and what that breakout is. They can even ask us to go to certain high schools. We did work for Johnson & Johnson, and we went to Franklin High School in New Jersey uh, in New Brunswick area, and half the school was wealthy and half the school was very poor. Um, So we're that specific, and the big piece is we go wherever they want them to go. Remember, I'm trying to satisfy demand here. So we do Bank of New York, 
not in New York, but in Nashville, Tennessee, where they have an operating center. So it's sort of a Burger King model. Have it your way. <laughs> and uh, we're trying to fill it with talented people. Uh, they get hired away for free, and they don't leave. So you want to talk about the problems with millennials and all these other things is we're finding that they don't leave. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the retention rate once you place these You know, in, in, in the educational cycle, because they go to work for us very quickly, and when they're in the education portion, they get a stipend, but very quickly go to work and complete their school at night. And then we expect after the certificate that they go to school at night and finish their degrees. But uh, it's about 90% uh, that make it through the educational piece. And then after that, I, you can count them on my hands. I mean, we're that good at the selections. How many people have you placed since you started? About 2,500. And how many 000. years have you been doing this now? We're, we've been at this about 13 years now. Now, among the underserved population that you're serving are veterans, right? Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Well, let's talk about that. So these are not officers. These are post-9-11 returning. They're like an older version of the high school students in many ways. In 2012, I met with John Strangfeld, who's the chairman of Prudential. And he was uh, down at the uh, Darden School where he was a uh, an alum. Uh, that's the business school down in University of Virginia. And he was doing a speech to uh, officers of the military in the business school. And at the end of that, one of those officers came up to him and said, uh, thank you, Mr. Strangfeld for everything you're doing for us in the military, but we have a question for you. What are you doing for the men and women we led? And you may recall in 2012, this was at the height of the unemployment. And uh, John came back to Prudential, and they tried a bunch of things, and finally the CIO, Chief Information Officer of PRU, which we had been working with, said, you know, maybe you ought to talk to Dr. Langer. And I spent two hours with uh, John Strangfeld, and it was an amazing, uh, just an amazing conversation. And he looked at me, and he says, can you get me 30 veterans? And I said, we're going to do that. And uh, that launched our veteran program. And, you know, the amazing thing about our veterans is that they come out with some some ability, right? That everybody that comes out of the military. And uh, we have cyber people at Johnson & Johnson, and uh, we have a captive location in El Paso, Texas, where we're doing project management and analytics. And uh, we do all those combinations, which I think makes our offerings extremely unique, because we're not tied into one industry, and we're not tied into necessarily one group. It's high school graduates, community college kids, if we have someone who's graduated from school and can't find a job, we'll help them pay back their loan as they're working for us. What have you found to be the biggest challenges facing veterans returning to civilian life trying to get a job? Uh, it's the t well, one, th there's two pieces to it. One of them is the transformation. I'll never forget this. We're sitting at Rutgers because Rutgers became a partner with Prudential being in Newark. And John Strangfeld came to the first uh, group of, of 30 veterans, and he said, what are you most worried, scared about? And they said, walking into Prudential. Now, here are people that have been in battle. And I cannot express, even for the high school students and people who have not worked before, what it's like to walk into a Prudential, a Johnson & Johnson. It is just an absolutely foreign thing. But amazing that someone who's faced death is worried about walking in. So this is the hardest thing, I think, for them. The hardest thing for the, uh, for the corporation, I think, that we face is that I think a lot of the past experiences are not very good because there hasn't been a lot of programs that are f so complete 
from beginning to end. We don't let go. We're doing everything, right? As opposed to just training or just onboarding with also the employer for that period of time. And to, 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 to let companies know that the talent is there. Because if you look at a lot of past percentages, it hasn't been very good. And we reduce the risk for them. But many people try to place this into a a sort of a cube. You know, oh, this is a work-study program. We've done those. Well, no, it's not a work-study program. It's something very, very different. Um, And once it gets going, I mean, I walk into Prudential today. Within three minutes, I'm going to see somebody. And it's become embedded in their culture now. And that's what makes it systemic. Why do you think it is that an alternative pipeline like this is so critical? Well, I think for a number of reasons. One, there's an incredible skills gap. Now, this is an amazing thing uh, that we're running around, and and not inappropriately, but we're telling everybody in the country that jobs are going away through automation. And I have to tell you, that's never happened. You know, that that also started in the Industrial Revolution, and it never panned out. Right now, we were talking to some people in Dallas. You know what the shortfall in for skilled labor in Dallas is right now? What's that? 37,000 jobs. Hmm. They can't find carpenters. They can't find electricians. They can't find people coming out of colleges and universities that are ready to step in and do these jobs. Over $200 billion is still spent outsourcing. And 20% of that outsourcing, you know, the old 80-20 rule, they're unhappy with, but they don't have any alternatives. Hey, I've got this wonderful group of young people that may take an alternative route to getting their degrees, but can work for effective salaries that are challenging and make sense for companies, and they don't leave. You didn't ask me that. They don't leave. They're in those communities, all right? And they have horizontal family trees. They don't want to leave. They want to stay with these companies. So all this stuff about millennials, you know, digital natives that are leaving in multiple jobs, our our kids and our veterans stay put. Now, I know that you believe that institutions of higher learning aren't providing students with the skills they need for the workplace, but why do you think that is? It's complicated. Um, number one, there's just the administrative challenges. And let's take the publics that really have that overwhelming responsibility. Every four years, you tend to get another governor. They're always messing with the systems. It's hard to maintain these things, and the cost is astronomical. And they're not tied into the buyer. So they're using a lot of, you know, funds. If you look at the graduation rates of community colleges, you know, two-thirds never graduate. I know of a, I won't mention the college, but I'll, uh, there's a community college that just celebrated graduating 7%. And how many transfer? 7%. So 7% of the 7%? Now, they're doing a lot of other good things, all right? But they can't, they're not agile enough to respond to the specific needs, and they don't have the personnel and entrepreneurism to be able to work with corporations. You're looking at me. I'm sitting here with a suit and tie. We're a very professional company, and when we walk into companies, they understand we're not just some loose nonprofit trying to do some nice things, and that's what it takes. And the universities, while their intent is good, they don't have the infrastructure From a faculty point of view, it's hard for them to design things and get them done quickly. And this is something that institutions of higher education are going to have to overcome or they're going to find that their numbers are going to start reducing. 
you refer to yourself as a social entrepreneur. That's what right? I like to say. We're a 501c3 charity, but we are social entrepreneurs. We want to change the world, and we, we want to do the highest level of quality and service and professionalism. And because we're a nonprofit doesn't mean we can't do that. We're a self-sustaining in many ways op- operation. And when people give us money and, and we raise money, we use that to expand operations, not to keep going. And that's a very important thing. What's your elevator pitch when you go in to try to recruit a company to work with you? Well, I, I sort of go in on a cafeteria uh, basis and first want to find out what their problems are and then begin to offer them alternatives. We don't violate the concept. Some companies can't write a big check up front, so we'll do what I call the on-demand. We also do managed services. We'll find places to do operations, claims processing, call center work, and I focus very much on what their needs are and try to provide them with a solution that makes sense, and I also want them to be nice. And we have some advantages. You know, wherever you think you have a disadvantage as a nonprofit, you have some advantages. Example, uh, Prudential and Workforce Opportunity Service are co-branded called Vet Talent. Uh, At Rutgers, the program was called SOAR. Uh, At Columbia University, it was called Slice. Uh, We have joint marketing materials with Georgia Tech. So there are things that companies can do with us as a, quote, for lack of a better word, a vendor, which I'm really not, but can help them because what I always say, what we do, you don't want to do, right, and can't do. We're 24 by 7. You heard the story of the the person uh, uh, getting evicted. There are many other stories, veterans sitting in their cars uh, because they have no place to live. We take care of all those little things. And without us, these people fall out of it. Just like without Mr. Ness, there's no Art Langer at Columbia University, probably. Do you follow up with individuals after they've been placed to as see how As much as we're doing? allowed to. You know, once they become an employee, we have to be careful because there's, there's uh, that issue. But yes. So I'll give you an example. Great story. A young man by the name of uh, Lawrence. His name is Lawrence. And uh, he had 200 fights when we found him in Newark. And he had a little bit, actually a little bit of a twitch. And he came into the program. He had a girlfriend. He had a child with that girlfriend. And uh, it was part of the program for... Uh, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield in Newark. Uh, he made it through the program, got his certificate at at uh, at uh, Rutgers, went on to get his undergraduate degree, and worked in the QA department at Blue Cross Blue Shield. Was hired away, and about a month ago, I got an email from him, and he said to me, "Just want to let you know, I got my master's, and I'm teaching now. I'm still at uh, uh, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield, and also attaches a couple of uh, pictures. I just had such a desire to, at least on a part-time basis, to continue my professional boxing career. I'm 2-0. Hmm. Now, how good is that? Now, you said you never had an opportunity to thank Mr. Ness. Correct. Did you try to find him? I didn't, and I feel bad about that. I still have in my house the certificate of completion that I got from Saks Quality Stores. But I never thanked him. But I will only say to you, I didn't have to. And you know what? I continue that. Uh, I don't need any of these people to thank me. And one of the things I say at their little graduations, I just came back from Chicago, a spinoff from Aon Corporation called A-Lite. We just uh, finished graduating uh, 12 people in cyber and project management veterans. And um, my speech was, this is your day. It's not our day. Now, maybe we opened the door. 
and maybe a light put up some money and maybe the college that's a partner with us they did nice things but you did this not us this is your day do you see your services needed not just here in the United States but elsewhere well we've been there so uh, you know everybody's global today and uh, our clients like GE for example uh, have global issues uh, so I was in just to give you an example I was in Budapest they're out there a lot uh, to help the Romani population we haven't launched that but uh, Workforce Opportunity Services has a, uh, a a group. It has a different name, and they call it an NGO, uh, not a nonprofit, in uh, France. And we do Violia Water. And if you can get the French, you can get anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also in the Netherlands, where two students, uh, master's students, came here and studied with me at Columbia and did their master's thesis on how this would work in the Netherlands. We now have five companies that have put money in with the uh, University of Groningen, which is up in the north, and it's a three-year project, and they actually have a PhD-funded student. In the case of France, a young lady who was completing her doctorate at the University of Grenoble did her dissertation on the model, and I was on the defense team, and she ran the organization for about five years. So we're in two countries and having conversations elsewhere. So if anyone listening right now wants to get involved with Workforce Opportunity Services, how can they do that? Easiest way online is info at wforce, dot org is our website. But uh, they can call me also anytime, 24-7-914-261-6142. Just call me on the phone. How frequently do you go back to the old neighborhood? Okay, every third Friday in the month, my friends and I have... We have a dinner. I try to make almost all of them. Most of my friends are retired police officers, firemen, sanitation guys. And uh, our last meeting was in City Island. Uh, we sometimes go to uh, Patty's Restaurant on uh, Tremont. So you don't forget where you come from, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, a bum like me can get to Columbia, and that's, that's something that's a wonderful thing that we cannot lose in this country. All right. Thanks so much for coming in. Hey, listen, it's my pleasure. Art Langer is the founder of Workforce Opportunity Services. Once again, more info at wforce.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Caroline Rotante and Julia Seabode. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>